Let's turn to Galatians chapter 1, please. Verse 6. I want you to know that Jim in the booth was in tears today because he was begging me to wish him happy birthday today. (laughs) I said, I can't do that, you know. And, okay, you do it. I can't make him clap, you know. And the poor guy thought that the president of Ireland was visiting us in our country because of Jim's birthday, but it was mostly because of St. Patrick's Day, which is pretty much the same thing. The last two messages before my upcoming hiatus, I'm going to basically call, Do I Have to Paint a Picture? I've heard people say that, and... The reason for that will become apparent, if not tonight, maybe by Sunday. Do I have to paint a picture? And let's go to Galatians 1, 6 and have a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be together. And we thank you that each one that's come out here has a purpose in doing so, and it's to become thoroughly occupied with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we have a gospel that is exactly all about him. Not about us, but all about him. But we have a reason to boast, as Paul said, and it's to boast in the things which Christ has done for us and the things that he's doing through us. For we would dare not, dare not boast in anything except what he's done for us and what he does through us. We thank you for the glorious privilege of participating in your life, Father, in the life of the triune God, and in the faithfulness of your Son. It's an unspeakable privilege, which we can't even appreciate as we ought. So let this be another step toward that, toward appreciating it as we ought, and toward a right worship. We thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. There are two primary rebuke paragraphs in Galatians to the Galatians themselves. There were three churches in Upper Anatolia, which we now call Turkey, Northern Anatolia at the time, the province of Galatia, three churches, and Cairo was one, Pessinus was another, and possibly Tavium, three churches, and they were all planted by the Apostle Paul. And As we know, teachers came in and troubled them. Teachers came in and pretended to care for them and were obsequiously attentive to them in a wrong way, and they persuaded them against the gospel that is all about Christ. Now, the most important thing that we've done so far, the most, and I'm I'm delighted, I was glad and thanking God that this was settled before I'm taking a little rest or a little hiatus, and it's because in 48 messages between the last time and this time, I wanted to kill two birds with one stone, and that stone is the stone cut out without hands that strikes the feet of the image in Daniel 2 by an analogy. And what I've been showing by that is, as you know, I've called the what's going on in Romans and in Galatians in another measure, a dialectic, and I use the delta, of contradictories, otherwise known as an antinomy or a direct opposition of two principles or laws. And what is being dealt with 
in Romans and in Galatians is not an antinomy between justification by faith, which is a human act, ha, 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 ha. Justification by faith, that's personal faith, the human act, versus justification by works. Nothing against JW, but justification by works, which is a human act or series of acts. It is not an antinomy between justification by faith versus justification by works, both of which are human acts. And that's what the understanding has unfortunately been pretty largely in the church since the Reformation, at least in the Protestant church. What it is, is rather an antinomy between the Christ event, which is described sometimes as the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, other times as the blood of Christ by which we have been justified And as the scripture says, we were justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath that this teacher is threatening you with in Romans 118? How much more are you assured to be saved from wrath because you've been justified by his blood, which is another way of saying his obedience his obedience to the extent of death, his obedience by which blood was shed by him in the performance of of his faithful obedience to the Father's intention of love and mercy, his intention to summarize everything in Christ, his intention to rescue the entirety of his creation, especially all of humankind. And that's God, God's intent. And so the antinomy or the, doctor, the dialectic of contradictories in Romans and in Galatians, where this word justification is used, Paul doesn't use it except in very rare cases, outside of Galatians and Romans, because that's the term that the teachers, the misleading gospel preachers, pseudo-gospel preachers, used to say that the only way that you can be rectified or justified or made right in the sight of God, you Gentile pagan believers, is through circumcision and then through an observance an assiduous, industrious observance of the Mosaic law. And if you do that, then you may avoid the wrath that's coming in the day of wrath. And that misled them greatly, obviously. And because of the way that it came across, it was very seductive. And so these three churches were actually beginning to defect. And there was some were considering, some of the males were actually considering undergoing physical circumcision to start down that road And so Paul very firmly says in Galatians 5, 2, in another rebuke paragraph, I'm telling you, Paul says, I know I called him. What do you say, Paul? Paul said, I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised under this pressure by these teachers, if you become circumcised, then Christ will profit you nothing. You'll lose the profit of what Christ means. You won't have the spiritual life. You won't have the experience of the newness of life. He's very firm about it. So the antinomy is between the Christ event, which is a divine act versus justification by works, which is a series of human acts. We are justified by his blood. 
says Romans 5, 9. How much more then shall we be saved by or saved from wrath? Then in Romans 5, 10, it says being reconciled by his death. How much more are we saved by his life? Going back to Romans 4.25, he was handed over, that is, to death, for our transgressions, for our sins, and resurrected for our justification. So what is the source of our justification? The death and resurrection of Christ, otherwise known as the Christ event. So the great antinomy in Galatians and in Romans, in which Paul uses that term justification, which is a poor translation, It's a poor translation, but he uses it because it was used by these teachers. In Galatians, Galatians, Paul brings up later and hopefully get get to some of this, if not Sunday, at least by April, sometime in April. They use the phrase or the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, a curse on everyone who does not fulfill the commands of this Torah, and they use that to threaten the Gentiles. You people are outside of this Torah observance, and so there's a curse on you, and the only way that you can undo the curse is by observing the Torah. Now, Christ died for our sins, the sins of Israel, and we could even say he died for your sins if, and it takes effect, if you're circumcised and become like us and therefore become justified. And you too can get into the terrible insecurity of not knowing ever if you're right with God until the final day when the wrath of God will come down on the doers of disobedience. So they used, now of course Paul got, turned that completely around on them. He took their curse language and used it against them. And said, Christ became a curse for us. The curse of the law, Christ became a curse because it says, cursed is every man. And that's important. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And Christ was cursed so that the blessing of Abraham, which was promised to all his seed, and that's Christ, the seed in whom all of humanity is, may be assured to us. Christ became a curse to make the blessing of Abraham come to you Gentiles unconditionally as a gift of God's grace. Don't forget it. But you did forget it, didn't you? You did forget it. And if I don't repeat these things enough, you'll forget it. Some of you will forget it. That's a guarantee. So Paul says it's not burdensome for me to repeat. And for you, it's safe. It means safety. It means stability. This is the gospel. So the antinomy is not between justification by faith and justification by works of the law, but by, it is a difference between the Christ event, which is a divine act. Salvation is of the Lord. That means God intended it, God initiates it, God acts to save, and God completes the action. He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion, will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Salvation is of the Lord, Psalm 3.8, quoted by Jonah in the belly of the whale shark where he could do nothing and spoke as if he was in Sheol or death and said, salvation is of the Lord, at which time God made 
that sea creature vomit. And Jonah came out in a type of resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, it's an evil generation that seeks after an attesting sign, especially when that sign is right in front of them, Christ himself, the Son of Man. It's an evil generation that seeks a sign. No sign is going to be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Whereas Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and then raised from the dead. The Christ event is the source of our justification. It's the source and the means of our justification in every case. So as we said last night, when we interview people, we say, when were you made alive with Christ? Some will say, when I repented of my sins. Some will say, when I repented of my sins and was baptized. Some would say, when I accepted Christ. Some will say, when I believed, executing a human act of faith. Then we called Paul, and we said, Paul, when were you made alive together with Christ? And he said, while I was dead in transgressions. And the same with you, Ephesians. Same with you, Laodiceans, in Ephesians 2.5. When Paul's not using justification language because he's not fighting with these false teachers, when he writes to the Laodiceans, the book we call Ephesians, he simply says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, you were dead while you were dead. When were you de- when you were dead? Christ, you were made alive together with Christ. And so the answer to that question is not when I believe, because that's a human act. So my two, the two birds I wanted to kill with one stone is to show that Paul is teaching against a justification by works. And he is teaching the Christ event pitted against that. Christ, the life-giving spirit, against the law that's not able to give life in Galatians 3.21 versus justification by the works of the law. As Paul said in Galatians 2.21, I don't frustrate the unconditional grace of God. For if we are justified by the works of the law, then Christ died to no justifying purpose. And that sets the tone. And we have the printout of that. Generally, we have pretty much the notes or the transcript on Sunday morning's message out there for you. And it will also be on the website. And hopefully all of the DVD groups will get it. And... It's because that's really the heart of the matter. So the first stone is to show that this is a contradiction between a false gospel, most of all, most of the statements of which are in Romans 1 through 3, and then a little bit in 4, which I'm going to get to when I get back. And then that the second bird killed by the same stone, which is a stone hurled from God himself, is the idea that what's being contrasted is a justification by human faith versus a justification by human works, and that's not it at all. People like to say that it's their human faith that's the source of justification because that keeps them autonomous from God. That keeps them in an autonomy from God. That keeps them independent from God, and it's a very subtle evil, a very subtle evil. So I wanted to get that clear, the two birds with one stone. And I think if we haven't killed both birds, we sure as hell wounded them pretty badly. 
So tonight I want to consider this. Do, you, do, you, do I have to paint a picture? Of course, I'm aiming toward Galatians 3.1, which is the second rebuke paragraph, but I'm not going there tonight. The first rebuke paragraph, and this involves what I call a strange angelology in Paul, a strange angelology. The first rebuke paragraph to the Galatians came in Galatians 1.6 through 9. There Paul hauled the Galatians themselves over the coals. Or we could say, in the language of the proverb writer, heaped hot coals on their head because he hauled them over the coals to help them, to help them be restored. In Galatians 1.6, I retranslated this. It says, I am astonished that you have so quickly transferred your allegiance. I think this is rooted in Isaiah 45.23. God says, I swear by my life, I swear as the one who lives, as I live, every knee will bow to me and every tongue acknowledge allegiance to me. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you have so quickly transferred your allegiance from the one who called you. Now, there's something important about that. Paul uses the word for astonishment here that's usually reserved for miracles, Reminds me of Pastor Brown's message about wonder. It's a wonder. It's thaumazo in the Greek. T-H-A-U-M-A-Z-O. Thaumazo. That's usually reserved for the awe that happens when a miracle is done in your presence. And many miracles were done in their presence as we know from Galatians 3, 1 to 5, which we might hit on Sunday. I'm amazed. I'm astonished with the kind of wonder that you should have when you see a miracle. And it's this word that's usually reserved for the amazement that comes when one does a miracle, as Jesus said in John 5, 20, 20, using this word thaumazo. He says to the Pharisees, I'm going to do many other wonders. I'm going to do many other signs among you so that you may wonder, you see, because... I'm intending to save you, he says, all the way down in 534. So here Paul is astonished at what is in effect an anti-miracle, an act instigated by evil, by false teachers. Kaleo is the word he uses, K-A-L-E-O, kaleo. And kaleo is also used in Romans 4.17, which becomes a very important verse to us, where it says that God calls into existence things that are not existent. Things that don't exist, God calls into existence. And he makes alive the dead. He makes the dead alive. Paul's trying to get a point across here. Salvation is an act of God, just like calling things that are not into existence as he did with creation. And salvation is so much an act of God that it's compared to the act of creation, which human beings had nothing to do with. And there was no response. God doesn't say to a non-existent thing, Respond to me and become. He simply says, become. As we said last night in Ezekiel, he comes to Israel and she is in her blood. That means that she is incapable of anything. She's essentially dead in her sins. And what God says is simply one word. He says, live. And they lived. 
He came to us when we were in our blood, when we were dead in transgressions. He came to Saul of Tarsus at the moment of Paul's height of transgressions. He was dead in the transgression, breathing out. Under his breath, we could say, he's murmuring about killing this community called the Church of Jesus Christ. And that's when God made him alive with Christ. So when were you made alive with Christ, Paul? Well, when I went down the aisle in the invitation by the evangelist and I put my Jack Daniels and my lucky strikes on the altar, I repented of my sins. But it really didn't happen until later when I got water baptized. And then after that, started to obey and witness and pray and worship and go to church. Nope, while he was dead. And so all Israel will be saved, as Romans eleven fifteen says, life from the dead is the destiny for all of Israel who will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six. And so it is with you. He said, Live. When light did not exist in the creation that God had made, God said, Light be, and light was. And as we mentioned last night, Paul quotes that and says, He who said, Light shine in darkness has shown in my heart to reveal to me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. It was a divine act. He who calls into existence things that don't exist saves as a divine act, an entirely divine act. Not in response to a human act. Listen carefully. Not in response to your faith. Listen carefully. Not in response to the faith of a spiritually dead person made effective by God either. Faith is never a condition in Paul's writings to appropriate salvation, justification, or reconciliation. Being reconciled by his death, how much more are we saved by his life? Being justified by his blood, how much more are we saved from wrath through him? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And Paul said to Peter in Galatians 2.16 and to the teachers sitting in the assembly as this gospel was read, as this epistle was read. He said, you and I, we're Jews. We know that. We are Jews and we have believed in Jesus Christ to reveal and to acknowledge that the source of our justification is the faithfulness of Christ. So those men had known and shifted. And Peter made that very clear in the great Jerusalem conference when he stood up and said in Acts 15, 9 and 10, Paul might have been referring to something like that, 15, 9 to 11, when Peter said, we believe that we will be justified by the grace of Christ, even as they are the Gentiles. The Gentiles get in by the unconditional grace of Christ, which is his faithful death, his love of us to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by resurrection, even as they are. And so Paul has to remind him, you and I, Peter, 
We do believe in Jesus Christ, but our faith in Jesus Christ was not the way we attained salvation. It's the way that we presently acknowledge that our salvation is rooted not in our faith, but in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, this gospel, and I'm not ashamed of it because it's all about Jesus Christ. This gospel is all about the Son of God. This gospel is all about a divine saving act of God in Christ and an unconditional grace by which God has already saved the human race. For while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love this way. While we were yet sinful, without any recourse to anything else, Christ died for us. So being justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him? So Paul's actually saying this wrath that this teacher said is coming to you, that God is revealing apocalyptically, it ain't coming. It's not coming. But in Romans 4.17, he also says that God is the one who calls the dead to life. That's the act of salvation. What did you have to do with it? Well, God had to respond to my faith. Like God's up there. He's really busy because he's got to listen. Every time he hears somebody believing, he has to run over there and save them, respond to their faith. You'd like to think that. Luther didn't even think that. He might have thought that early in his life, but I have some quotes I'm going to give you from Luther. 25 years after the 95 thesis, when he saw a vision of Jesus Christ's wounds and saw his election right there, his salvation in a crucified Christ. And he said that in 1542. That's 25 years later than 1517. Now, if you want to find some of those interesting quotes, it's in The Coming of God by Jürgen Moltmann, and one of the best books on eschatology I've seen, but it, it, it requires a little more exegetical definition. So in the act of our deliverance, God calls us into existence as a new creation. In the act of our deliverance or salvation, if you want to call justification, it's okay, even though that's a poor translation. In the act of our deliverance, God calls us into existence as a new creation. We weren't a new creation. Now we're in Christ and a new creation. God called us into existence who didn't formally exist. As a new creation. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying just like Adam, who was called into existence by God, made out of the dust of the earth, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He had nothing to do about it. God made him and brought him into existence. This Adam turned away from the one who brought him into existence in a disobedient act that included the entire human race. But now you guys are actually turning away from the one who gave you existence as a new creation. And I know this because at the end of Galatians, Paul takes the pen out of the hand of his amanuensis, who is the ghostwriter, and he says, I'm going to write this with my own handwriting. And he wrote... Circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean a thing. They mean nothing. But a new creation, now that's something. We're a new creation. 
If any person is in Christ, and how'd you get into Christ? You were slam dunked into Christ when you were dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.5. And if any person is, is in Christ, new creation, kinectesis, the new creation. And so Paul is, again, he's trying to make it known that this is not an act of God in response to a human act. This is simply the act of God as a manifestation of his great love wherewith he loved us and of his richness and mercy in Ephesians 2.4. Calling something into existence that did not previously exist is a divine action. So is salvation. Same way. I almost said same exact, but that's, I don't like that phrase. Another phrase I don't like. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why does this generation answer questions this way? Yeah, no. So, so wait a minute. You just said, yeah, no. You notice that? They, you ask, oh, yeah, no. So, and they go, you just answered three different ways. That's evil. Jesus said anything other than just yes and just no is comes from the evil one. I'm kidding a little bit, but I think it shows kind of the signs of a confusion. Were you saved by unconditional grace? Yeah, no. So uh, I don't know. Were you made alive with Christ while you were dead in sins? Yeah, no. So stop doing that. Now, if I was a boss and I was hiring people, and somebody came in and I asked them a question. They said, yeah, no. So I'd say, do not hire, do not hire, do not hire, do not hire. Are you qualified for this job? Yeah, no. So are you qualified for this job? Yes. Okay. This one looks good. Are you qualified for this job? No. See ya. Are you qualified for this job? Yeah, no. So no. Bye. Yeah, no. So Bye. That's just a thing. Just a thing. That's all. I have to lighten up once in a while. If I keep going in this heavy stuff, I'm going to crack. I'm going to crash and burn. This stuff is the heaviest I've ever studied. And I, I need to rest a little bit in my mind. Calling something into existence that did not previously exist is a divine action. So is salvation. So once we existed in the Adamic ontology and now we have put off the old man and we're part and parcel of a new creation called into existence by God. So wonder. So when Paul says he who called you, he's in astonishment because he said you while you heard the gospel from me and heard a gospel that elicited your faith which allowed you a participation in Christ and demonstrated that you have an unconditional gift of salvation. When you heard that at first, you looked at me as if I were an angel from heaven, an angel of God. You even received me as if I were Christ Jesus himself. And that's not far off as I'm going to show you at the end of this message. But now you are defecting from the one who called you into existence as a new creation. What are you doing? That's a shock. Salvation is of the Lord from its intention and initiative to its act and its completion. 
Now, again, in the original human defection, Adam in his disobedience turned away from the one who called him into existence, who made him from the dust of the earth, which is why 1 Corinthians calls the first man of the earth earthy. He made him from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. When the first Adam, the earthly man, turned away, according to Romans 3.12 and then 5.12 through 20, all the human race turned away in him and with him at the same time. That's how significant that one act of disobedience was. So the act of this one man is also one of the main reasons why the redemptive act of God in Christ is for all humanity. Because in the one act of obedience of the second man, the man from heaven, all of humanity was included. Taking shape, then, is the main goal of this message, of this series of messages called Better Call Paul. Taking shape, then, is it seems that a picture is being painted of a crucified Messiah raised from the dead whose act has saved humanity, who is an all-saving Savior. The act of disobedience by Adam took everybody with him. And an even more remarkable move by God that's not even comparable to that act because of its proportion, it's being all out of proportion, is the act of the obedience of the last Adam, the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, brings back the whole human race to God. First Peter 3.18 says, he, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous ones. That's everybody. I'm sorry, Pastor Brown, everybody. That's everybody. Everybody is included in Adam's defection. Everybody is included in the unrighteous ones. He died, the righteous one, for the unrighteous ones to bring us to God, to bring us to God. Adam defected to take us away from God. Christ obeyed and died for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. And we have a prosagoge. We have an access to him. Do we use it? Not always. Sometimes not ever for some. So in a more remarkable move by God, the act of obedience by the last Adam, the heavenly man, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, who became a life-giving spirit, Jesus Christ brings back the whole human race to God. For as the scripture says, 1 Peter 3, 18, I just quoted it. This certainly helps us comprehend Paul's astonishment then. If we see the defection of these three churches or the potential defection of these three churches as turning away from the one who called them into existence as a new creation. That's insane. That's nuts. Only a new creation means something, Paul says. They were called into existence as a new creation in Christ by God. And now they were shifting their allegiance to teachers who claim that they need to be justified by human acts called works. And it's not much of an improvement when people say that you have to be justified by the human act of faith either. See, that's the other bird I'm knocking out of the sky. Same stone. So let's go back to Galatians 1.6. So remember the antinomy, and I'll help you out with the notes that are out there 
on the table. Remember the antinomy, the opposition of two irreconcilable laws or the dialectic of contradictories that Romans and Galatians is based on. So let's move faster now. One six, I'm astonished that you've so quickly transferred your allegiance from the one who called you by the grace And the better translations, I think, of this include the grace of Christ, another word for the faithfulness of Christ, the grace of Christ. For by grace, God's unconditional act, you were saved through the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus and not from works of any kind so that no one can boast. So the one who called you by the grace of Christ, that's the unconditional grace of God demonstrated in the faithfulness of Christ. That is to say his death for sins followed by resurrection for our justification. A way to a different gospel, a different gospel, heteros gospel, which means another that's not of the same kind. Heteros means this is not what you've been removed to is not just another version of good news. It's not another version of the gospel. It's not an acceptable one or compatible one. It's another one. And he said, because this you've been removed away to a heteros gospel that is not allos, which means another version of mine, another way of saying what I'm saying. It is not another way of saying what I'm saying. To a different gospel, heteros. And then in verse 7, which is not another, meaning another of the same kind. It's not another version of the good news. But there are some, supply this word in brackets if you will, I have, some, there are some who? Teachers. As in Romans, we have the head honcho, the teacher. In Galatians, we have the teachers, And some of them are sitting in this congregation listening to this epistle being performed by one of the instructors that Paul left when he left to teach his gospel. There are some who are troubling you and who want to change the gospel of Christ. They want to change the good news that's all about Christ and make it all about adherence and observance of the law or the Torah. In Galatians 3.21, like we mentioned last night, Paul says the Torah is impotent to give life as it is impotent to justify. It can't justify because it can't give life because justification is the giving of life. As one man's disobedience brought everyone into condemnation, one man's righteous act brought everyone into justification that is life, says Romans 5.18. Can't emphasize these things enough. This message, this series is going to last for a while because there's, I want to say it in a way that will never be denied again. There are some teachers who are troubling you and who want to change the gospel of Christ. Remember the antinomy. Their gospel is justification by the works of the law. And Paul's gospel is the gospel all about Christ by which justification has its source and its means in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Remember that. But even if we, Paul says, we speaking of his original team that he came in a mission to Galatia. Even if we, or an angel from heaven for that matter, what does that mean? 
or an angel from heaven, for that matter, should proclaim a gospel in contradiction to the good news that we preach to you, let him accent on him, emphasis on him. Let him be cursed. You know why he's saying that? If there was such an angel, and it's impossible that there would be an angel sent from God to preach that gospel. That's not the point. Paul's making a point here. They said to them, Paul is cursed. His gospel is cursed. Because in Deuteronomy 27, 26, doesn't it say right there? And Paul changes that quickly. Doesn't it say right there? Cursed is everyone who does not perform observance to the commands of Torah. So Paul is cursed. Paul said, let me tell you something. If we preached another gospel than the one you heard from us originally, or an angel from heaven, for that matter, let him be anathema. Does Paul repeat? Hey, Paul, do you repeat? One, two, three, five, 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 yes. You know, the time is different here in heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I just wanted to ask you, uh, do you repeat? Well, why don't you read 1-9 and see, let them see that. Okay, bye, Paul. 1-9, as we, Paul and his missionary team members, said to you before, so just now I, Paul, am saying it again with emphasis. If anyone proclaims a gospel, quotes, so-called, other than the one you originally received, let him be anathema. He's reversing the language of cursing on the other gospel. The teachers were the ones who introduced the language of cursing, especially with Deuteronomy 27, 26. Paul doesn't use that elsewhere. He doesn't use the cursing language elsewhere. And he turns it around and says, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. It says in Deuteronomy 21, 23, which means that Jesus Christ was cursed as every man. He took the curse of every man. He was every man cursed on the tree in order that the blessing of Abraham might come right past the law from God directly, the promise spoken to Abraham's seed, which is Christ and everybody in him, which is everybody, that the promise might come to the seed and all who are in the seed So Christ was made that curse that you're telling everybody they've got to be afraid of. He turned it into a blessing. As Deuteronomy 23, 5 says, God does turn a curse into a blessing. So they're telling you that I'm cursed because I haven't preached a gospel of Torah. I'm telling you if anybody preaches, and that includes an angel from heaven. Now, why does he use that term, an angel from God or an angel from heaven? Well, they had no doubt said that Paul was anathema. Because he preached a gospel that didn't espouse observance of Torah. Paul then radically reverses the language to a curse that would come even on an angel from heaven if he were to preach another gospel. Now, it is impossible for an angel from heaven to do so. Since angels from heaven are angels from God who have submitted to Christ in his resurrection so that an angel from heaven couldn't do so. Paul's therefore saying that just to make a point. These angels ascend and descend upon the Son of Man's command. Nobody commanded by the Son of Man, including angels, is going to proclaim another gospel than that. Now, 
I'm going to get into that a little bit on Sunday because it's Jacob's vision. But Paul says this for extreme emphasis in defense and confirmation of the gospel that's all about Christ. Now, there was a Jewish tradition that in the eschatological age, an angel from heaven would preach the gospel to all the nations of the earth. That was an angelic preaching of the gospel. And John, in his revelation in 14.6, takes up that tradition and shows it to be part of his apocalyptic vision because he says in Revelation 14.6, and I saw another angel flying in midheaven having the everlasting gospel to proclaim to all those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people group. Now listen carefully. This is some strange angelology. This is not to say that an angel will actually proclaim the gospel to all the nations, so we have to wait for that to happen, see an angel flying in midheaven and seeing him preaching the gospel to all the nations. This is a symbolic way of saying that the gospel is preached to all the pagan nations, but the angelos messenger just might be Paul. Watch it. In fact, you know what these teachers said? Because it was a Jewish tradition, it was a rabbinical tradition, I can bring you the books where it's found, and next time I'm with you or some other time. They said, the gospel we're preaching to you is the preaching of an angel of God through us. It's the preaching of an angel of God through us. An angel is speaking through us. So Paul said, I don't care if an angel from heaven speaks this gospel. Let him be cursed. And you go to these lexicons that are infected by the false gospel, and they say Paul's telling him to go to hell forever. Paul never mentions hell in all of his epistles. Neither does he ever wish anyone to go there. And that's not what he's intending here. The troubling teachers in the messianic communities of Ancyra, Pessinus, and Tavium in Galatia in A.D. 50 had probably claimed, in all probability, that they were actually preaching by the inspiration of that angel and fulfilling that sacred tradition. So Paul said, well, even if an angel from heaven is speaking through you, and he's preaching another gospel, then let him, not me, let him be anathema, if I can use your own language. He's just taking their own language and using it to emphasize a point, not to tell other teachers to go to hell forever. That would just agree with their gospel, which is God's day of wrath going to send most people he created into hell forever to burn forever and ever, because that's the God of love. I've taken to growling lately sometimes. And so Paul is simply emphasizing the severity of the offense in the proclamation of a heteros good news. And they even called what they're saying good news. Good news. You get circumcised and fulfill the observance of the law, you got a chance at avoiding the wrath of God. That's good news? That ain't good news. Interestingly, Paul mentions later about angels that the weakness of the law itself was shown by the fact that it was handed down to man through angels and through a mediator, Moses. 
That showed the weakness of the law. And that compared with the promise that God made to Abraham that had no stipulation to it. It was a presuppositionless promise, not based on any response by Abraham. God promised Abraham that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And his seed, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, is one. It's singular. It's Christ. In Christ, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Blessed with what? With life from the dead. That's with what? So Paul said there's a weakness. Speaking of angels, angels reveal a weakness in this Torah that you're preaching because the Torah was handed down through angels. In Galatians 3.19, that's what it says. And it's a quote of Deuteronomy again. Paul traffics a lot in Deuteronomy, just like these teachers did. He goes to the same territory they threw the gauntlet down in and took them to task and went a few rounds with them, and they got knocked out, not Paul. And so again, even later in this epistle, Paul recalls that the Galatians had originally welcomed him as if he were an angel of God. And he said, no, no, not just an angel of God, Christ Jesus himself. That's how you accepted me. Could this be a hint that Paul was in fact the angel or the messenger that was prophesied to be proclaiming the gospel to all the Gentiles? Just a question. This is an interesting development of angelology. We saw in Revelation that the word angelos, angels of the churches, probably refers to human messengers. Was Paul flying in midheaven? No, but his success in the gospel was just as supernatural. Because he says in Romans fifteen eighteen, may it never be that I should ever boast in anything that I've done on the mission field, but only in that which Christ has accomplished in and by me. So they accepted him as if he were Christ. They welcomed him as if he were Christ Jesus. And that's not far off because he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 2, Christ is in me speaking to you. For even as he was crucified in weakness and lives by the power of God, so we too are weak in him. And we speak, he says, in the power of God toward you. So they actually detected Christ Jesus in Paul. In whom the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in Christ's face shone and shone back out through him. So again, it's not idolatrous on the part of the Galatians to receive him as if he were Christ Jesus himself. Because A, Christ was in fact speaking through him to them and working in him toward them. 2 Corinthians 13, 2-4, Romans 15, 16-18, and B, because those who welcome a messenger sent by Christ also welcome Christ himself. Those who hear you, hear me, he said to his disciples. The one whom I send, if you listen to him, You're listening to me. You're honoring me to honor them. You're honoring me. You're honoring my father who sent me. As I send you, as the father sent me, I send you. What did he do then? He reenacted the created act of Adam. He breathed into them. He breathed and said, receive the spirit. As the father sent me, so send I you. So Matthew 10, 40, John 20, 22 to 23, 1 Thessalonians, Paul said 10 years early to the Thessalonian church, you received 
our message, not as the words of men, but as it is indeed the word of God, which now has its powerful effect in you. Preached in the spirit and the power of conviction. So you have Matthew 1040, John 20, 22 to 23, first Thessalonians 1, 5, first Thessalonians 2, 13. So again, is there a hint here that this angel in mid heaven preaching an everlasting gospel to all the nations is actually an apocalyptic reference to Paul who had supernatural success in the proclamation. Who was the emissary that Jesus Christ called to preach the gospel to all the nations and bring about faithful obedience or participation with Christ's fidelity among all the nations in Romans 1.5? Paul, the apostle. Paul, the angelos. So that was fulfilled in him. And there's a lot more other things that Paul shockingly talks about in his phenomenal intimacy with Christ. In which he sees himself as part of prophetic fulfillment. After all, he was commissioned by Jesus Christ as his emissary to the Gentiles. Romans 11.13, Galatians 2.7-9, which was agreed upon by the Jerusalem leadership including Peter and James and John, and that Peter was commissioned with the gospel to the Jews. And then again, this is important, and we'll close with this, Romans 15. Turn there just for a moment. Paul only boasted in that which Christ accomplished through him. As he says, candidly, in Romans 15, this I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which someday I'll give a Greek translation. I've already done it. In the Greek, but this is just for time's sake. 1515 of Romans. Nevertheless, to remind you, I have written to you more boldly on some points. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a kind of priest of God's good news. My purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. That's all I'm doing. I have to say that's all I do in this pulpit. All I do is boast in Christ Jesus pertaining to things about God, pertaining what pertains to God. I am boasting in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. God's act in Christ, justifying, saving, redeeming, reconciling. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. Notice verse 18, for I would not dare, I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. That means that his gospel has the power to effect an efficacious spiritual life in participation with the son of God and in participation with the triune God. In other words, the end of all this teaching isn't your theological knowledge. It's you getting a life. The newness of life, the fantastic life of the coming age experienced now in the power of the resurrection. So in any case, we can say boldly that this is the age when God is sweeping 
the Gentiles, into the people of God by the proclaiming of the message that incites or kindles or elicits faith in the hearers. The gospel itself elicits faith, kindles faith in you, not faith for justification. It kindles in you the faith for participation in the livingness of Christ himself. That's what the gospel is. And that's what I must make more clear. And I pray that you will pray for me that I will make it more clear in the days and weeks and months to come. I've only done, will have done by Sunday, Lord willing, Lord willing. And if we live, as James 4.14 says, 48 messages on Paul, two solid days of teaching. Now is the day of salvation, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.6.2. And that means the day that Isaiah called a coming day of salvation in 49.8. Paul said that day is now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the eschatological day. Now is the dawning of the eschatological age. Paul himself spoke in terms of phenomenal intimacy, and by that I mean a phenomena of intimacy with Christ that's extraordinary. Inasmuch as messianic prophecy in Deutero-Isaiah, Paul's two favorite books are Deuteronomy and Deutero-Isaiah because of things that we'll see coming down the road. Messianic prophecy in Deutero-Isaiah, that's Isaiah 40 to 55, was being fulfilled in the history of Paul's own gospel proclamation. In other words, Christ Jesus called as a light of salvation to the Gentiles and to the salvation to the ends of the earth was continuing his work in Paul. So Paul said, death works in us that life may work in you. And in Acts 13, 47, Paul said in this connection, this is all I'll say tonight. Speaking in Acts 13, 47, Paul says, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have appointed you. This is God speaking to Paul, but this is what God said to Messiah too. I have appointed you as a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, 6. Paul said, this is the commission given to me. Of course, it's Messiah who brings salvation to the ends of the earth, but Messiah is in me proclaiming that salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul, by the time he gets to Romans, to the Romans, he wants to go to Spain. He wants to, his success in missionary endeavor was as supernatural as an angel flying in midair to preach the gospel to all the nations. And so this is a strange angelology that I'll leave you with. But more importantly, do I have to paint a picture? In the next rebuke paragraph, Paul says this. Do you remember when I was with you? I painted a picture of a crucified Messiah. I painted a picture that showed you that the source and the means of your salvation was a crucified Messiah. Now you're going to be perfected by the works of the flesh. Now you're going to be perfected by the flesh. Now you think... After seeing that Christ Jesus is the source of your salvation and your justification, you're now going to get into a works program to perfect yourself. Are you nuts? Do I have to paint a picture again? He said. So the message Sunday morning just might be, unless the Lord changes it twix now and then, which he often does. Do I have to paint a picture again? 
Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that these messages, especially the last few, will be hammered home in such a way that the two birds are killed with one stone, and that stone is Christ. And we thank you, Father, that the source and the means of our salvation is Jesus Christ, who bears today the marks of crucifixion, and who also bears the unspeakable and indescribable signs of life. 